Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to be uh, playing a conversation that I just recently had with another YouTube channel called Project Could. I did a, a discussion with him a couple years ago, I, th I believe, on the Nephilim doctrine. And Project Could, he's got some uh, strange beliefs for sure. But uh, he had listened to my uh, program about the Olivet Discourse, and he's someone who believes it's basically all future. And and so he wanted to uh, have a discussion with me about it. So in this conversation, I kind of had him uh, leading the conversation and the discussion. And uh, we talk about, you know, whether it's future or past. Now, the conversation starts out a little slow. This is going to be a longer episode. But let me just tell you, hang on to the end because it, it, it starts to get good towards the end. And here's why. Okay. A, a lot of futurists, and I'm a futurist, they just can't get past the idea that the primary interpretation of the Olivet Discourse is a prophecy for the first century. And there is application that we can make, but because only application is typically ever taught from futurists, people think it's all about the future. Well, that creates tons of problems in that chapter if we're gonna if you're gonna do that. And whenever you are in error, okay, whatever method you use to interpret the scriptures to get to that error, if you are going to be consistent in that, then you are going to typically have to go into greater error. And that's when we get into weird stuff. That's why we have things like Ruckmanites. That's why we have things like Calvinists and dispensationalism and stuff like that. And, and Project Could, unfortunately, he's a little, he's a kind of a dispensationalist. And he's got some Calvinism in him too. And so uh, the extremes he goes to are pretty crazy. But at least he's being consistent. Unlike most of you who deny the past fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse. And so uh, watch where his consistency leads him to. And that is what happens when you're in error. And that's why we should always be ready and willing to correct something when we get it wrong. If we hang on to that error, that leaven will spread and we'll sound like weirdos. And so we don't want to do that. So anyway, I hope you all will enjoy uh, this conversation. So here it is. Okay. Um, yeah. So we've got Matthew 24 uh, on the table. We've got, you know, things from Daniel and Revelation to talk about. So um, I've listened, um, here to your content, you know, recently on, on Matthew 24 in your position that, um, has much more of a focus on 70 AD, uh, versus I would really say that Matthew 24 is perhaps exclusively, or at least, um, is, is it all futurist position with maybe the exception of, um, one stone being left upon another, uh, that, I actually now in my framework, I, I actually do kind of have that as a. I'll get into the detail here. So, I believe that the real focus of Matthew twenty-four for a correct interpretation is an understanding like verses twenty-nine through thirty-one. Uh, there's other key verses in this passage as well. In fact, like it's almost like every verse is a key key verse in this chapter, honestly. But like, out of the, if I had to pick the most key verses, it would be chapter uh, verses twenty-nine through thirty-one about. Uh, immediately after the tribulation, and, you know, and then shall throw the sign of the Son of Man, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of the trumpet. Now, that seems to be 
Uh, in fact, it is the climax really of what this whole chapter is building to. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, so we, we do have agreement that, you know, that is in the future that, that has to be in our future. And if we don't have that, we really don't have a blessed hope. Um, you know, this is when we're going to get our glorified bodies. Um, this is when, you know, as, as it's termed the rapture from first Thessalonians four, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's, that's when this will appear. So we have agreement on that, but I really do, do see this as, because I, in fact, I was actually just recently listening to some material from some full progress and that's just kind of a frightening position, but, but I also do believe it's a very consistent position because they're just like, yeah, it, it, the second coming already happened. The resurrection already happened. You know, this took place in 70 AD. I think they have a very consistent reading, even though I think it's a very errant reading. Um, so I, I would say kind of the only um, consistent, full consistent with no issues would be like full preterism and absolute full futurism, which I don't necessarily even hold to that because I have at least the option of uh, one stone being left upon another as being about 70 AD, at least that, that seems to best fit that terminology. Um, having even said that, when I look at sort of the introduction questions that the disciples have um, about, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. And if I were to compare that to Mark 13, um, I really do see that as like connecting the events of the temple with the, the second coming. Um so I even would leave open a possibility of there's going to be yet a destruction of a future temple because I absolutely believe in a future temple that's coming, uh, which, you know, that might be a difference between um, myself and Tommy here. But I definitely I'm committed to that. I believe, you know, future daily sacrifices that are coming um, in conjunction with this, you know, I believe Daniel's 70th week time period that's yet to come. Um, but at Mark 13, so let's see here, the disciples, um, they say, tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled. Um, so that's really just connecting the throwing of the stones, um, or the one stone not being left upon another, connecting that with um, the second coming. And when, you know, what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? What's the sign that they're really asking about? Um I think it's absolutely connected to the second coming here. So, you know, there there definitely is difficulty. Um, I, I think with this, unless you're maybe a full preterist, um, to, you know, be able to say it's all in one time frame, it's all going to just kind of, quote, literally happen. But yet, actually, that would be the only issue with full preterism is unless they just say all these things are literal, including um, the clouds, um coming of the Lord in the clouds, I think a lot of them would maybe tend to try to get that spiritual some way, somehow. Uh, you'd almost have to, especially if you think the Josephus account of, you know, the chariots that were seen um, warring, you know, over Jerusalem and Israel and maybe elsewhere. Um, but that's clearly not the second coming, as you pointed out here. Mm-hmm. Um, so so let, me, let me just try to recap. Uh, a little bit of my position. So uh, post-trib pre-wrath um, or pre-wrath were more simple. Uh, the post-trib would come in light of you have this time period of great tribulation. 
that ends because of the second coming of Christ, or or I should say the the day of the Lord, or uh, the sun um, being darkened, stars falling, moon not giving us light, etc. Um, that would be what signals the end of the tribulation mm-hmm. or the tribulation of those days to be very technical. Mm-hmm. So I have that occurring in our yet in our yet future. And because of that, um, we have that period of great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time or nor ever shall be. Uh, that's that has to be talking about only one period of time. Otherwise, we lose the the plain sense of the grammar so unless we say this is taking place in 70 ad and that was the great time of tribulation the, the exegesis clearly shows that that is what immediately precedes the second coming and that's that's why i would also say a full preterist you know has a great ammo in their uh, in their gun so to speak of hey, you know, 70 AD was a time of great tribulation. And immediately after that, you had the second coming in their opinion, which it obviously wasn't. So because basically my argument is because the second coming is is yet to come, therefore virtually everything you're reading in Matthew 24 is yet to come. Uh, I find it to be a a beautifully simple uh, reading of the text and, and what the exegesis demands. Um, but, and, and I, I did, you know, get to kind of listen to your, your take as to, you know, maybe why you're, cause you basically have a conditional prophecy going on where you think these things would happen if certain things happen. Uh, and, and to be honest, I don't really see any of that in the text, but could you just maybe expound a little more on, um, how you're getting conditionality out of this text? Yeah. So basically let me put the scripture on the screen. Um, so in verse 36, you know, after he says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, uh, no, not the angels in heaven talks about, you know, know a lot, all that stuff. Here's in all prophecy. This is the part everybody always forgets to pay attention to with every prophecy. It's not just, you know, the prophet or Jesus telling us what is to come, but there's a, there's a challenge. And there, uh, in every prophecy, there's instruction, there's something you're supposed to do, or maybe something you're supposed to repent of. And so in verse 44, it says, therefore be also ready for such an hour as ye think not the son of man cometh. Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give him meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I send you shall make him ruler over all his goods, but And if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him in an hour when he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So right there, he's giving a potentially negative outcome that's going to happen if they're not ready uh, if they begin to smite the fellow servants and eat, drink with the drunken, he's going to come on a day when they're not aware of, and they're going to be judged. Now, that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Uh, Christ can't, you know, you could say there was a coming in judgment that took place 
and they were destroyed because they weren't ready. They did smite the fellow servants. They and uh, therefore uh, they were judged. And then when you go into the Olivet Discourse parables, you know we do we see the parable of the uh, foolish virgins that weren't ready, that didn't have oil in their lamps. We see the parable of the talents, where you ha- that's ultimately about Israel who wasted or buried the talent they had. They didn't use it. They didn't do anything with it, and it was taken from them. And so, um, you know, basically what we see happen, I think what we're seeing there in Matthew chapter 24 is we're seeing a prophecy for that generation that has two potential outcomes. One is a good one where they're delivered. Uh, Another one is one where they're judged, and they ended up getting judged. That's what happened. And so... The, you know, I guess some questions I have for you is what is it that causes you to read Matthew 24? And while there are references to things that take place in other parts of the world, all indicators are the entire context of everything is destruction for Jerusalem. So what makes you see this as global tribulation, global destruction. What kicked this off is Jesus had just cursed Jerusalem and the temple in chapter 23. They immediately go depart from the temple. They look at the temple. They're wondering when these things are going to be like the destruction of the temple. And, uh, and, and so then he goes and explains things that were going to be happening, not just there, but in other parts of the world, but that signaled destruction there, that signaled wrath on these people. That I mean, he even gets a specific, he mentions the abomination of desolation. That can only happen in Jerusalem. He mentions uh, those that be in Judea fleeing to the mountains. That obviously is, you know, he's speaking about something locally that's going to happen. You know, he's talking about the uh, Gentiles treading underfoot the holy city. I mean, everything that he is talking about is about things on Jerusalem, which is exactly what Daniel's 70th week, Daniel's 70th week is all about, uh, well, it's, it's all about judgments on Jerusalem. That's what it, that's what it's all about. It's not about global events. It's about judgment on Jerusalem. So why is it when we're, you know, what is it about Matthew 24 that makes you think Jesus is describing a, you know, future, uh, global judgment that's happening, you know, 2000 years in the future, especially too, when he keeps talking about this generation, if we start in chapter 23. Okay. Um, so this would be kind of more of the holistic difference that we have is, um, and I would say this, even though I recognize there are many things that are local about like Jerusalem and Judea, no doubt. And in fact, many dispensationalists, which I do consider myself one, although uh, I don't believe in like dispensational salvation, as in like there's works ever involved, works that never been involved with salvation uh, other than Christ's work. But again, we have faith. Um, it's always been by faith alone for humanity to be saved, just to make that clear for the audience. But um, so I would say just kind of as, I mean, we do have even sort of in the early answers to the question, you know, for nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Um, in verse nine, you should be hated of all nations for my name's sake. 
So that is talking about worldwide hatred uh, for Christians. Um, now, obviously, he's talking to his disciples here, which is specifically, I want to say, Peter, James, and John that we get from probably the other cross-reference, um, Mark 13, Luke 21 uh, passages that, that clarify that. Um, but, you know, like in Mark 13, like what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, full predators should probably just say that's talking about only the all that were alive in 70 AD, but uh, I think that's speaking of all um, continuously until the second coming actually happens. You know, um, when the, these events are passed, when the millennium happens, totally different conversation. But um, until the second coming happens, you know, this continues to apply because the second coming has not yet happened. Um, in verse 29 as well, you know, the sun being darkened, moon should not give light, stars will fall from heaven. It's a worldwide event. Uh, the second coming, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. The whole world will see that. Every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, according to Revelation 1. Um, you know, the rapture, he shall gather together his elect. Uh, that's worldwide. Um, even verse 21, for then shall be great tribulations, such, such as was not since the beginning of this of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. Um, yes, there is a focus, no doubt, on the abomination of desolation and sort of the Jerusalem and Judea and Israel area. I think that's definitely where the greatest persecution will be, but um, I definitely see that as worldwide within the context of you should be hated of all men from a namesake. Um, I also believe the abomination of desolation is very specifically the image of the beast in Revelation 13, and that's what will initiate the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is not before that. It comes after the setting up of the abomination of desolation. So that would be a midpoint um, at Daniel's 70th week from my perspective. So that's going to be when no man can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Um, so that that will be a key world sign, uh, okay. sign, if you will. Right. Yeah, you, well, you're, you're, you're reading, you're starting to just kind of read off a dispensationalist timeline. So I guess, you know, my question is what from, you know, what from the passage makes you see judgment outside of Jerusalem? Again, there's signs, there's signs of things in the world that are pointing to something. And it's clearly the destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem compassed about with armies. Know that the desolation that's in Jerusalem is nigh. They'd be in Judea, flee of the mountains. Everything. So while things in other parts of the world are referenced, it's all about judgment on Jerusalem. That's a hundred percent of what this is, what this is about. And here's and here's another thing too. You know, would you not agree that again, that prophecy is not just it's not somebody sitting there with a crystal ball looking into the future, but it's 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 also preaching saying if you do this this is going to happen or if you don't do this this is going to happen and many prophecies do this very thing for example let's go to the very end of the old testament malachi 4 for behold the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud yea and all the do wickedly shall be stubble and the day that cometh shall burn them up saith the lord of hosts and it shall leave them neither root nor branch but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, 
for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember, he's talking to a nation here. This isn't just individuals. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Therefore, it says shall. Therefore, it has to happen. Wait a minute. No, he shall do that lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That tells me if that doesn't happen, he's going to come and smite the earth with a curse. Well, guess what? Jesus did send Elijah. He sent John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah, and they killed him. So why are we looking for good to come? What did he say was going to happen if that didn't take place? He was going to come and smite the earth with a curse. And you could definitely say 70 AD was a huge curse. In fact, Jesus literally cursed Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, right before he gave the Olivet Discourse. And so in the book of Acts, we see the apostles preaching their hearts out to Israel, trying to get them to repent so they could be spared that coming judgment. But as a nation, they never did repent. And it was just as, and as it was prophesied, they didn't repent. And you know what? They got destroyed. So prophecies, they have, they often have optional outcomes that are given and nobody ever stops and says, Hey, we, they were given an option. So what did they do? Because that's the one that we should be looking for. For some reason, dispensationalists, they ignore every prophecy showing the curse, showing the negative. They only read the ones that show the good and they act like that has to happen. No, it doesn't. In fact, it can't happen. Otherwise, God lied. God wasn't just throwing out uh, just uh, an empty threat. He was giving them a promise. And so since they did not do what he said, you know, since they were not, they were not counted worthy. In fact, you know, let's go look at Luke chapter 21 at the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21. Look how he says it here. It says, and take ye heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts should be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares, meaning this could happen for as a snare, it shall come on all them that dwell in the face of the earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the son of man. So here's the question. What do you have to do to be accounted worthy to escape all of these things? Now, on one hand, the answer is simple, right? You got to, you got to believe on Christ. Well, here's right. But then what's the alternative? Okay. Well, the alternative, you can try being worthy, following the things of the temple, keeping the law, which is what the Jews tried to do. The Jews who rejected the Messiah in the first century, they clung to the law. They clung to the temple. In fact, when they were surrounded by armies, their final holdout was literally in the temple and they were destroyed in the temple. The thing, they were not, they were not worthy because you cannot be made worthy by the things of the law. And so, you know what? The, they did not escape. They did not, they did not get deliverance. And so, uh, but for some reason, we're supposed to ignore what happened. We're supposed to ignore the fact that there's like, hey, here's an optional or potential negative outcome 
if you're not ready. And we, we're not allowed to look at the fact that they weren't ready. And that as a result of that, you know, they didn't get the good outcome. Okay. Um, so here, here's what I would say about Malachi 4. Uh, I, I would say that the verse about he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest they come and smite the earth with a curse, that that actually was fulfilled, that the, um, the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, that that was fulfilled by John the Baptist in the first century. How? That, that, how? By people listening to his word. Publicans, the harlots, you know, believed, for example, um, many of Israel was um, converted because of his ministry. And it's because of that, that we then have the blessing of salvation from Jesus Christ, because otherwise he would have not gone to the cross. He would have come to destroy Jerusalem um, utterly and immediately while he was there. So do you believe the Jews did what they were supposed to do with John the Baptist and that the law, the things of the law were fulfilled with him? Uh, what I can say, I believe, is that the that this is when it says uh, he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers. I agree that there are were that it would only make sense that there were people in Israel that didn't do that. Uh, but I do believe there are people that were. And it's because of that we have. Christ um, giving us, you know, his life and his sacrifice and death. Right. But you understand that these things that are written, they were written for Israel and Israel disobeyed. Do you agree that Israel as a whole, obviously there was a remnant, but you know, would you agree that Israel as a whole disobeyed? Yeah, he came into his own and his own received them not. Right. You know? And so what are the consequences of that? Well, I would I would agree that, you know, 70 A.D. is, you know, basically what they get because of rejection. OK, so then are they done? Are uh, when you say done, can you can you clarify exactly what you mean by that? So, uh, yeah, what was that final judgment on them? It has wrath come on them to the uttermost. Or are you still looking for them to get another chance? Oh, no, I, I believe in the future that. Uh, all Israel, according to the flesh, shall be saved. So and wrath is not that, on them to the uttermost? Uh, to the unbelieving ones right now, I would say yes, it is. Okay. But in the end, God's going to turn away that wrath. Therefore, it's not to the uttermost. Uttermost means to the end. So so here, here would be... Um, because even, okay, so like you'd have to look at it, for example, like obviously when it's speaking of that, it's speaking of unbelievers. But, but let me even clarify it further. It's really speaking of the non-elect believers, or excuse me, the non-elect, hence the non-elect unbelieving, meaning people who will never end up believing the gospel. Those are the ones Versus who are... those who are um, the elect and currently in unbelief. I mean, they have wrath of God on them. But, you know, later in their life, they will end up leaving the gospel. How do you know that? Well, even regardless of, you know, how one views election, uh, I think you and I both st would still agree that we could say the elect are the saved, the, the unelect or the non-elect are the non-saved as, as a generality. Mm -hmm. So we would both have that in common that any Jew that ends up leaving the gospel, it, 
you know, is elect. And mm -hmm. as a generality, those who are unbelievers are not elect. Right. But how can you claim an, an ethnic group has some kind of guarantee of being elect? Especially um, when they were stated to be under God's wrath to the uttermost. Again, obviously any individual can be saved, but to apply some kind of special uh, guarantee in the future that that they will be elected, I, I don't know where you get that from the scriptures. Okay. So just to make it clear for the audience, I, I do believe in unconditional election. Um, I know we've talked about that one time before. I hopefully you still remember that. But yeah, I remember there was part of Calvinism that you agreed with. I just couldn't remember which part. Yeah. So I don't believe it in atonement. You know, as far as when when speaking purely of the um, extent of the atonement, limited atonement is heresy. In fact, I would go so far as to say those who believe it as a false gospel. Um, Christ died for the world, not just for the elect. But when it comes to election specifically. Um, I definitely believe scripture um, overwhelmingly teaches unconditional election. Yeah, that's, well, I don't want to get into that too yeah, much. Well, at least you're consistent with the, because like in the dispensational world, they scoff at unconditional election unless it's about Jews, which is, which is, which is, yeah, which is, yeah. Uh, I think is yeah. super mega hypocrisy uh, to be against unconditional election for other people. But for that, when it comes to the Jews, um, I, I reject unconditional election across the board. So understood. And, and unless you mean that it is unconditional that God has elected those of faith to be saved. <laughs> but when you, when you apply it to an individual, uh, you know, or an ethnic group or something like that, that's absolutely foreign to scriptures. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we, we definitely have a difference of, of how we view Romans 11, I, I think overwhelmingly the exegesis is that it's speaking of Israel according to the flesh, that all of them shall be saved. And even when it's speaking of that, it's speaking of a remnant, um, not because so you, it's a remnant of who's alive, but it's because of a remnant of who remains alive. So you think that the, but, you think that the Israel of today is still like a legitimate Israel that has a connection to the Israel of the Bible? Yes, but having said that, I also believe in replacement theology of sorts because I, I recognize Christian, Jew or Gentile, you know, physically is mm -hmm. the Israel of God. Right. Okay, so here here's a question that I can't get other dispensationalists to answer. And that is, okay, so what first off, what actually makes someone an Israeli, okay? And and again, mm -hmm. obviously any nation can form, just like America was formed in 1776. But when we're talking about the Israel of the Bible, okay, um, the Israel of prophecy, whatever you want to call it, what credentials does one have to have to make that claim? Why can't literally just anyone, why can't a Chinese person claim to be of Israel? Why can't a black person claim to be, of, you know, why can't I claim to be of Israel? What makes, you know, th these people who have these special blessings, special prophecies, special election, all coming for them because they're of Israel, what are their credentials that makes them uh, have a legitimate reason to expect 
to be included in these dispensational style prophecies? Well, I mean, I'm I'm not an Israelite, so I can't like answer that very well. So you just accept would... preferred their preferred pronouns and preferred races? Because in, in the Bible, they had to have a record of their genealogy, otherwise they could be considered polluted. They were to be if they didn't have record of their genealogy, they were considered polluted. Why why don't we do right. that anymore? Does I mean again if if they have this connection to Israel of the Old Testament, then shouldn't there be a connection to the Old Testament and how they show that? Why are no Jews, who, especially too, when we have Christians, we have Christians telling other Christians, you should go be a blessing to these people so God will bless you, and these people have literally no credentials that can identify themselves as to, as, a, as a legitimate Jew. All they are doing is you have certain people who have some practices that resemble apostate Judaism, the Antichrist religion of the apostate Jews in the first century. So I, I don't, and, and we were forbidden from even bidding those people Godspeed. So I, I, I don't, I'm 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 missing how we're supposed to, uh, you know, why we're given some kind of special election and claim to a people who we were even forbidden to bid Godspeed to, you know, in Second John, and uh, and people too who literally only say they are Jews, you know, but appears to me are not, and are probably lying, and I can only assume that, considering they have absolutely no way because. They for sure aren't keeping the law. They're they're for sure not keeping the feast. You you realize you can't keep the feast. It's impossible to keep the feast without a temple. It's impossible to keep the feast without a Levitical priesthood. They don't have they don't have any priests. They don't have any temple. And and in reality, they don't the the reality of the nation of Israel is only a reality in certain countries. Uh, there's a big chunk of our world that doesn't even recognize the state of Israel. And it's it's in question. They're literally, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fight that's kind of been in a stalemate since 1967. And, and so absolutely none of the things that identified Israel in the Old Testament are present today. Nothing. When they were supposedly reformed, we had no voice of the prophets like they always did before. We had zero miracles. We have no temple. We don't even have a we don't even have a clear example of any type of world power giving them prominence. We have a we have a UN resolution that allowed for uh, a state within uh, you know the the Palestinian state too, but. You, you realize none of these things, this is, we have redefined nation to, you know, to support the idea that we have an Israel today. We have redefined what Israel is. We have redefined what a Jew is. We've literally redefined everything all in a t an attempt to connect it to dispensational prophecy. And so 
I, I, I don't think anybody is actually thinking any of these things through at all. Even if dispensationalism is right, even if dispensationalism is right and Israel is coming back, what even tells you they're back? You do, you realize if when you read Ezra, when they came back, they were able to, they had to prove they were who they said they were. And I think it's in Ezra chapter three, two or three, there were those who, who couldn't, and they were considered polluted and put from the, put from the priesthood as a result that why had, why didn't anyone have to do that? Why does no one have to do that today? Okay. Well, th- this would also be a dispensational difference because, um, Although I, it'd be great if every every claiming Jew could just be like, okay, here's my genealogy. Now I'm I'm also not convinced that that nobody has that because uh, I think there are some people that, that have it and it's either quiet or just it's just not super heard about. But if you're in the right group in Israel, you know you kind of know about it. But that's my that's my take. But regardless, no, just, nobody just... nobody can literally no one can prove All it. Right. Here's here's what I'm and I'm just I'm stating a fact. Let me just because this is a hundred percent true. It's it's, a big it's, statement, it's considered but... anti-Semitic to de- to deny that someone is Jewish when they claim to be Jewish, just like it is bigoted homo or transphobic transphobic to deny someone's preferred pronoun or preferred gender. But a man's a man, a woman's a woman, and a Jew is only a Jew, you know, legally speaking, according to the law. If they can prove it, that at least that's how it was in the Bible. You didn't just get to identify yourself that way. Well, uh, let me let me take you back. So, you know, Book of uh, Esther, if I remember, talks about those who became Jews. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, that's those who are Gentiles becoming Jews because right. of their religion. So, but, but how did they do that? Well, circumcision. You know what I right. mean. Um, dwelling with the people, you know, right. recognition among the people. You know, follow. Uh, and ju- the, the simplest thing would be circumcision, but like, yeah, but I'll even say this, like, I, I think the whole concept of being a Jew from the get go was always this loose thing. I would say it is inherently a biological thing, but it, it's always a loose biological thing because mm-hmm. um, there is some, you know, maybe some differences of opinion on this, uh, although because um, I believe Rahab is referred to in Matthew chapter one. So she was a Gentile, but I would say she became a Jew. And in retrospect, she became a biological Jew, not because of like who she descended from, but because of who she's integrated with. Mm-hmm. So. Right. But it's, but part of the Yeah. But part of them doing that too involved them keeping the Sabbaths uh, involved, keeping the feasts. There were things that the priests had to do. They don't have any of those things. You You literally can't do any of that stuff without a temple and so again now if if somebody is jewish okay if somebody is jewish i completely understand you know because they reject the new covenant they reject the coming of the messiah then they should think in their mind there is a process to becoming a jew but that in process that process includes certain things from the priest it includes certain offerings it requires a temple and they don't have any of those things. So in reality, they have nothing. Now, for a Christian, for for a Christian to play along with that, knowing that God got rid of the temple, 
He got rid of the Levitical priesthood. Those things were temporary. Those things were temporary. They were a shadow of things to come, and those things came. So for a Christian to play along with that, that doesn't make any sense at all. You know, and it's it's major hypocrisy, and we have to throw out so much of and we, we got to throw out the book of Hebrews if, if we're going to play along with this stuff. It, 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 I don't, I don't see that at all because I, I, here's just what I believe that the scripture, and we're going to have probably a difference in belief on this, but I, I absolutely believe that the scripture shows that the 12 tribes of Israel have to exist to this day and always. Why? That it just does. Why? And you may disagree. Wait, what problem? So yeah, because. There, there was a reason God preserved them when he did, because there were promises to be fulfilled. I know what those promises are. Why do we need tribes today? What promise, um, needs, what promise needs to be fulfilled? My easiest one is Romans 11, that all Israel shall be saved. Um, we have, for example, um, in Revelation 7, we have the 12 tribes. Again, and technically, you know, there's different sets of 12 tribes, right? Because, you know, whether Dan or you're kind of breaking up Joseph into um, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, for example. Um, so, I mean, there's that whole thing. But, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I In Book of James, you know, it's even written to the 12 tribes at that time. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think all 12 tribes uh, are going to exist. Uh, probably Isaiah 11 would probably also indicate that too, uh, from how I understand it. So, so are, are, are you expecting some kind of revelation that reveals who the 12 tribes are in the end, or is it just going to be a bunch of people that come along and just identify themselves with the 12 tribes? I mean, I don't. I actually don't know what to expect on that. I mean, here, here's what I here's sort of my default is the people over in Israel. I mean, they claim to be Jews. I ain't got any evidence against them that they're not. So right, I'm, but you need evidence that they are. Otherwise, I you know, I don't God, I don't necessarily think so. Well, no, every pro, every genetic prophecy that the Bible makes, it also preserved a record and the evidence of it because those things mattered. That's why we have the genealogy of Christ in the Bible. He had to come from the tribe of Judah, from the seed of David. And so we have those records. Otherwise, it means nothing if he just says, I came from David. No, we need, we need a record. We need something identifying that, showing that. And so if he made prophecies that still need to be fulfilled to uh, concerning the 12 tribes, then there has to be some kind of record. Well, if there hasn't been one in 2000 years and nobody's been even trying to keep track for the last, you know, even thousand years, it's not just going to all of a sudden magically appear. It, it doesn't make well, any sense. Most of these people probably can't go back 10 generations. Okay. So even if I were to grant that them knowing for certain, you know, what tribe they are of, if that's somehow a requirement in order for like Romans 11 to be fulfilled, then, then my position is that record's going to be found. And I don't, again, I don't even think that's needed, but I, I could see why it's important. It's an interesting point, but if, it, if that it would have needed, to be, then, then it's going to be found. Yeah. Well, like I said, it, it, it would have to be, like I said, because in reality, what people, what dispensationalists have had to do in order to try to preserve their flawed theology is they've redefined a Jew. They've redefined the nation of Israel They've redefined the tribes. They've, they've redefined everything. 
And so, and and what what we're what you you're you're even expecting to come flies in the face of everything that ever happened in the Bible. It's completely it's completely contrary, and there there literally physically is absolutely no way to you know make these things happen. And it's just it God God removed the temple for a reason. God removed. That he, that he, the the temple, the th- things of the old covenant became a stumbling block, and in Hebrews thirteen, they were specifically told, "Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We do. Jerusalem is does not matter anymore, and a." a genetic group does not matter it is a what matters is a spiritual people there is there's absolutely no reason you know to restore an ethnic people god already kept his promise concerning abraham's seed the messiah came god has already multiplied abraham's seed as the stars of heaven god has already made Abraham a father of many nations. God has God has already done all of those things. So, you know, what still needs to be done with the Jews? Their their salvation in Christ. Why why not? Why wasn't uh, why wasn't the 3000 that got saved and then the 5000 that got saved? There were thousands that got saved in the first century. Why was that not the fulfillment of that? Because that's definitely not what Romans 11 is talking about. Why not? Everything in Rome, every literally everything in Romans 11, everything that Paul referenced was in in reference to that day, in that present time. And he says it over and over again. He's emphasizing this day, this present time. Everything he's spoken of can be shown in past tense. Where you're getting confused is when he quotes an Old Testament scripture, you know, prophesying of something in the future that was in the future then, but I, I can show you in the scripture where that's spoken of, that very thing is spoken of in the past tense. Okay, because I, I know the scripture you go to in Acts 3, yeah. but if we can, like, because we're Why doesn't so here. all Israel shall be saved mean every Jew someday in the future is going to get saved. Why isn't that showing necess- more of how they will be saved? Um, I, I, what can I say? Like, and so all Israel shall well, be so, saved. It's, it's like it's like I Malachi mean, four, and he shall turn the hearts of the children. And I, I believe, but that not. Happened. But did, did everyone's? You, know, you said even you said. Well, there were some. It didn't say all. It didn't say all in that. It says passage. he shall turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. It did, you know, it didn't say yeah. that some. It said he shall do this, but then it said lest he come and smite the earth with a curse. So according to how you're interpreting the Bible, either all of them had to do it, or none of them had to do it. I'm telling you, yeah, I think I think there were some did, but overall they didn't, and so he came and smote the earth with a curse. I think here when he talks right. about and so all Israel shall be saved. He's showing too. It's more of uh, uh, how they will be saved, and because out of Zion came a deliver and turned away on Godliness of Jacob, that happened with Jesus Christ, and so all Israel shall be saved if they abide not still in unbelief. 
But here's the question. Did all Israel get saved? Well, all the ones who didn't abide in unbelief sure enough did. But somehow you're reading that and making it, no, all, all the Jews in the mm -hmm. future are going to get saved. That doesn't mm -hmm. even make any sense. And here's, here's the thing too. Hey, here's the thing about that too. You know, all of Israel shall be saved. You know, he's, you know, we're talking about, you know, he's been talking about the physical nation and, um, you know, you know, what do you say to the fact that literally Israel got destroyed? Like, I think it was 10 years, roughly 10 years after Paul wrote this, Israel got destroyed. Israel was gone. Israel was, Israel's still gone. It says we've redefined Israel. We've redefined nation. We've redefined everything. Israel never came back. You understand? Israel, 1948 was not the return of Israel. Okay, now we've, because people, theologians have moved the goalpost on what it means to be of Israel, what it means to be a nation, uh, they've moved the goalpost on what it means to be restored, and they're just declaring it that way. But, you know, that would be like me going and digging up a body out of the grave and standing it upright and saying, look, they rose from the grave, just like the Bible prophesied. Well, no, they didn't. There's no life in that body. That's not the way it looks like. And so just because someone's propped up a dead cor corpse over there in the Middle East that doesn't have the spirit of God in it, that has no spiritual life, that is not believing on Christ, doesn't make it so. Israel does not exist. Israel got destroyed. So what, um, what makes those people Israel? What makes those people Israel? Yeah. I mean, in general, it's like they have descendants. They're descended from Abraham, right? Descended but, from but, Jacob. But, they, but they can't prove it. But, that, but, but hang on a sec. Just because they can't prove it, and, and I don't think that's the case for all of them, but let's just even go with that for a moment. Um, they're still having descendants. Um, like, clear, clearly, they're have to, I mean, unless you take a radical position that nobody on the earth today descends from Jacob, which I don't, I don't think you take that position, but um, I, th I think it's rather obvious that uh, Jacob's seed um, continues forever. As, as long as, you know, as long as there's going to be a state of children producing on the earth, there, there will always be descendants of Jacob. Period. Well, I mean... You know, the simple fact is, I mean, on one hand, that's true because, yeah, Jesus Christ came from Jacob. And so as long as Christ lives, that's not what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking I, about people that are. Uh, but, you know, again, children. I could say the same thing about ham. Sure. Absolutely. So but so the thing is, it doesn't make anyone special. You know, it's just a statistical. Uh, it's a it's a, a statistical improbability that somebody who had as many descendants as Jacob did, that all of his line will get wiped out. It is, it's, there's nothing special about it. It's just reality. Just like, you know, there will always be people from Ham. There will always be people from Shem. Uh, there will always, you know, it, it's not, it, there, there's nothing impressive about that. And at the end of the day, no one will ever be able to prove any of this. So it really doesn't matter. Well, See, we're, we're making a we're making a huge deal about something that literally can't be proven. Okay. 
Well, here, here's what would make them special. Um, if God saves Israel and uh, not, I don't know, the nation uh, Saudi Arabia, the nation of Germany, because that that's he's going to make it a full end of all other nations, but it, Israel will be saved. I mean, that's what's going to happen. So that's why they're special, because they have promises that are yet to be fulfilled Wait a minute. And, and and their history as well. So then why? OK, if, if you're going to go to an Old Testament prof, a prophecy about, you know, Israel going forever, then how come for, you know, 1900 years in your world, they were able to go away? How is that able to be fulfilled if they were literally gone for 1900 years? Well, because that's not my position. My position is that Israel has always existed, like as far as from their origination, you know, and till now and every, everything in between. They've always been a people. They may be, in, they may have been a scattered people. In fact, we we obviously know from the Old Testament, Babylon scattering, Assyria scattering them. They're still Israel, just because they're scattered. Um, well, they can even get to the point where we have, um, like the Samaritans, where yeah, they descend from Jacob, but they're. You know, you have Israel and then you have Samaria and, you know, it can get to the point where they're no longer considered Israel. But I believe that there is a legitimate Israel. I believe there's, you know, an illegitimate Israel, if you will, um, whether that's biologically, whether that's just religiously, you know, spiritually. I mean, there's all kinds of Israel, if you will. Mm. Well, I think you have to at least admit We've had to redefine. You've had to redefine Israel because they did have to provide proof in the Bible. Well, if, for example, in Ezra's day, if that's what they did for like Levitical priesthood, or okay, well, that's one thing. That's the Levitical priesthood, but but it wasn't just them. It was it was the Jews, not Israel. Okay. The Jews. It specifically okay. mentioned those from the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. It was Jews. Okay. Okay. Now, when, so the, th- the thing is too, Judah was restored to their land, you know, during the, t- uh, you know, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So when did uh, those who were called not a people, uh, called the people of God, which was a prophecy towards not Judah, but towards Israel. So in that in that case, I believe there's um, a kind of a multi-layered prophecy going on there because Romans nine, which you know, uh, very interesting chapter, but um, yeah, you have a form of replacement theology there where Israel people is now being called not my people, and then um, then the Gentiles are the people of God. But I also believe that prophecy um, in Hosea is, speaks about Israel. Uh, specifically them, they're at one point called not my people, but then later that people is then called the people of God. So when did that, do you think that's still yet to come or do you think it already happened? I I would say that is extremely relevant to Romans 11 about all Israel shall be saved. See, because that already happened because Israel being saved, though those, them who are not a people that would be called the people of God, that was in rep, not to Jews. That was in reference to Israel, and that's why they went to those tribes that were scattered that, abroad. They were being they were being restored to the people of God. They were being restored to the covenant, even though they had been intermixed and even though they had been spread out all over the world. They're being restored, and 
And in and he writes that to Rome and to the church in Rome that was Jews and Gentiles, but he applied it to all of them. So that restoration of the northern kingdom of Israel, that took place in the first century, and it included the multitude of Gentiles or fullness of Gentiles as prophesied by Jacob. That's, that, that's the thing. Most dispensationalists never want to talk about the difference between Jews and Israel. They don't talk about that. And that's a very important thing to understand because um, that, you know, that's what it was all about too. A, a lot of what Jesus is dealing with when he's taught, when he's going to the outcast of Israel, you know, but versus the, you, know, you have these Pharisees, these Jews, the people who, then they were only, you know, the Jews were only in captivity for 70 years. So it wasn't that hard for them to be able to show they were who they said they were. Those of Israel, though, they were in captivity much longer. You know, I forgot how many years they were in captivity. So, you know, they were they weren't able to do all that stuff. And they were treated like garbage by the the Pharisee Jews. But one of the reasons that the Jews hated them so much, and we see this right there in the book of Acts, is the early church was literally meeting there in the temple, around the temple. And but they are reaching out to these outcasts of Israel and making them a part of the covenant and a part of, you know, this new sect is, is how they would have seen it back then of Jews. And this threatened them greatly. And when it re, when they really lost it, I think it was in Acts 8. I can't remember which chapter it was. When Samaritans, when they included Samaritans in the covenant, when they included, when they included them, then they really lost it. And then, of course, by the time they, you know, Cornelius comes along and they start letting Gentiles in, it was a huge, it was, it was a huge to do, but most people don't even realize what was happening. They don't even understand that's what was such a big deal about those stories and acts. All most people are doing, they're just seeing souls getting saved, which is a blessing souls getting saved, but it was more than just souls getting saved. It was people being included in the things of God and in things of the temple that before were being excluded by the other sects of Jews, because you had the you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had these other sects. But the, what they all had in common is they were at least all Jews, and so even though they didn't always get along, they recognized their claim to the things of the temple. But then when these Christians, right, these Christians who by the way were all Jews, they started expanding a little too much. That's when those other Jews completely lost it. And, um, but again, that all of that is completely, all those things are completely ignored by dispensationalists. They just, they see Jews, Israel, you know, all is just kind of one thing and they don't, and they don't even know what it is. They don't even, they don't right. understand what that is. And, and it's because, you know, y'all have kind of redefined what these things are okay. and something that doesn't even resemble what we see in the Bible. So, so let me just um, push back on that. So I, I get, I, I don't think there's a single dispensationalist out there who's ever going to deny that there's a distinction in the Bible between Israel and Judah. Like that's clearly there. And then of course, from Judah, you get Jews um, derivatively. So undoubtedly the Bible in the old Testament has a lot of emphasis on that at times. Um, what we as dispensationalists, or at least I'm going to speak for myself here, 
what we believe the New Testament is often doing when it uses the term Jew is it being a generic reference to an Israelite. Um, not because necessarily because this is like the Southern only. Now, there might be some, there's some of that, I, I think. But I think there are many times when the Bible will interchangeably uh, use these. So, right. So, say but, sometimes it's it it does integrate all twelve tribes into being a Jew, and other times it's speaking about um, like Judah and Benjamin and maybe Levi. So mm-hmm. that that's our position. So it's but not you that understand we're that of, even of Israel and Judah, like we, I we think, definitely yeah. recognize that. Yeah, I think there's a reference in the New Testament to someone from the tribe of Asher. I think there's a uh, uh, there's another one I'm forgetting, um, but you know, you understand those people happen to be ones like the other Jews who were able to, sh- you know, would have been able to show their ancestry. That's why they would have been able to be included in being Jews. But again, those outcasts of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, you know, they, they were that prodigal son that, you know, the older brother, the Jews weren't happy to see return. And, and, and the thing is, because here's why everybody has to ignore that. If you recognize who it, Ephraim was, who Israel was, the northern kingdom, you can't help but see, too, the inclusion of the Gentiles in that as well, showing that we can include ourselves, you know, with Israel. And the in reality, you know, you know that even though they were called not a people, they were going to be numbered as the sand of the sea. And again, not because there was just going to be millions and millions and millions of Israelites, but because that was how uh, the Gentiles were going to get in. God making a way for the, you could say, the polluted Israelites is what opened the door for the Gentiles as well. That's legally how how we got in as well. So uh, that's what, that's what people are missing. So our claim as Gentiles, any claim that we have, it's kind of we were able to get in under the terms and conditions that enabled the Israel, the northern kingdom, to get back in to the covenant. Okay. And and we don't, you know, we don't talk about that stuff that much in our New Testament churches because again, We just take it for granted because we understand race does not mean anything. Okay. But because dispensationalists have all of a sudden decided they're going to go back to the Old Testament economy and make a big deal about those things again, but just redefine what all those things mean, you know, we find ourselves talking about these things. And so, you know, I'm just getting, I'm just getting real technical with you because um, if we're going to talk about races, if we're going to talk about tribes, all these things, okay, let's do it like the Bible does. And it was very technical in the Old Testament. Thankfully, Jesus got rid of all that stuff, and it literally doesn't matter at all anymore. But if you're going to claim it does, then let's do it right. And you know what? That's a very overwhelming thing, and it's one, too, that it can't it can't be done. It literally, it literally cannot be done. And it's kind of funny watching dispensationalists try. Okay. Well, here's what I'm going to propose to the audience is like, we can either be like, okay, well, we have to identify the Jews um, utterly. And I, I don't know, maybe that's not the, what's being said here, but it kind of feels like it because it's like, well, where's your genealogy? Um, yeah, I think that's important. Uh, I 
I would prefer that, that, that every claiming you have one. But uh, also, I think it's rather manifest that just because you don't have one doesn't mean you actually aren't. And and I would say that if we're if we're missing what Romans 11, for example, teaches about all Israel being saved, and that's speaking of every Israelite alive at a certain period when, when the, actually when the coming of Christ happens, uh, I believe it's speaking of the third coming, not the second coming, which I have a three and a half year gap between those. But um, if we if we can't see that, you know, like if Romans 11 is teaching that, I mean, man, I, I'm I'm really concerned about exegesis in general because it's like. It's very plainly taught, and if we're going to just say that's – and honestly, here's what I'll really submit. I, I really believe the fundamental difference is um, in, infection of Arminianism. And when I say that when I say that term, I don't mean because you're literally saying I'm from – I believe what Jacobus Arminius believed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm using that term really for um, non-Calvinists. Uh, I really do think that is the fundamental – difference in how we view prophecy and and theology is you know the sovereignty of god and that you know he'll accomplish all his pleasure and when you understand that understand the scripture teach that i mean and you have the exegesis to demonstrate that i mean this is where i would say like the old ifb they they've in general have correctly interpreted romans 11 but they just won't admit that that's mini calvinism for them versus i would just say yeah, this is totally consistent with unconditional election. Like, this is absolutely what's being taught, and uh, many a theologian would defend that. Even the the Calvinists who are a little weird about how they feel about Israel, a lot of them even sort of will say, like, yeah, this passage is has something in the future for Israel. Um, so, and again, as far as how we relate this this prophecy to the nation of Israel today, I mean, it's almost like we're 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 being told to, to like hey this nation that was established in 1948 maybe it's not really that big of a deal and i'm just like no this is an extremely big deal this is going to help fulfill prophecy i don't i don't necessarily think that um the passages the dispensationalists go to about ezekiel about the dry bones i that's no that's talking about when israel is going to be in faith and, and the resurrection things like that it's not talking about 1948 for sure so that's a misuse by dispensationalists so i would just kind of invite a you know whether you're new ifb old ifb calvinist dispensational um somewhere in between like re-examine everything that you have and make sure the scripture exegetically shows it um and also, just like I'll, I'll point this out about kind of Israel in general, I I, I notice this consistency of it's like at, at the one hand we want to say, well, these people aren't actually Jews, but then but then they sort of end up getting attacked because, well, you know, they're professing Jews, and you know they kind of end up aligning with the bad um, statements that are said to them. So it's like. You have to make up your mind. Are they Jews in general or are they not? And I say they are because we don't have any evidence to really show that there aren't. Well, here, yeah, and let me clarify this too because you make a good point there, okay? Um, Now, are they Jews in the biblical sense? Absolutely not. Now, are they a generation of vipers like the generation of Jews were in Jesus' day? Absolutely. 
because of the fact they do the works of their father, the devil, the works of their physical fathers who persecuted Jesus, who killed Jesus, who killed the prophets. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. So they have the that same spirit that the unbelieving Jews did in, in that day. And so I, I do, I, I will put them in a spiritual category with the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day. But I only put them in that category, not because of who they descend from physically, but because of who they descend from spiritually. They have, are, there, there are a people out there today, without, for, without a doubt, and they're all over in Israel. There is a bunch of people who have adopted the beliefs and the practices of the Antichrist, synagogue of Satan, of the first century, and therefore all the curses and things that were put on those people, I believe they have claim to, but not because of their genes, not because of who they descend from, but because of what they believe. Just like I don't descend from Jesus Christ or Abraham that I know of physically, but I do have the faith of Abraham. And I and I am in Christ, and so I have uh, I have a claim to all of Christ's inheritance because He inherited all things, and I am a joint heir with Christ. And so uh, I can, in fact, say I can talk about our fathers who passed through the sea, like Paul said in in First uh, Corinthians. I can refer to our father Abraham because I have the faith of Abraham. I have the faith of the Old Testament saints of David of Gideon of those people. And so I can for sure claim uh, a lineage with them, but it's a spiritual one, just as the so-called Jews over there today, without a doubt, can claim any of the curses. Uh, you know, when the Jews said his blood be upon us and on our children, I believe those people over in Israel for sure can claim that because they have the same beliefs and practices, not because of their genes, that has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. In reality, I believe that uh, you know they have the curse. If if they do descend, if they descend physically uh, from Abraham, then the only um, you know promise, or I don't know if promise isn't the word. The only claim they can have is the one of Ishmael, because they're children of the flesh. And the children of the flesh are not the children of God. Children of promise are counted for the seed. So they can go look at what God said about Ishmael, uh, that his hand would be against every man and every man's hand against him. And they can claim that. And, oh, that's interesting because Paul said that the Jews were contrary to all men, interestingly enough. So, yeah. So, yeah, they, they, they do have a connection. But it's uh, it's more of a spiritual one. Okay. Well, I mean, I definitely agree that there's a spiritual connection. Um, the difference there would probably be, I just sort of go maybe a step further and say, well, it's kind of like those who are outwardly identifying as Jew. I mean, I just sort of say, well, I, I think I absolutely believe there has to be uh, genetic Jews. And when I say that, let's just say genetic Israel right now because of the way the conversation has developed. So I'm just like, well, who, is it just going to be, you know, people that don't even believe in Judaism? No, I think it's going to be people, there will be a continued, like from the time of, of Christ till now, there, there's always been um, 
the word faithful Jew is a weird word because I don't believe that, you know, those who reject the Christ are faithful, but faithful to their beliefs, their kind of skewed views of Moses, you know, kind of the religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and then I, I even think, you know, obviously Judaism of today, you know, has taken it way beyond because uh, I think the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, sorry, not the Sadducees, they were the liberals of their day, but the Pharisees in general, like they were the conservatives and, they had a much, um, I think, better views of the Old Testament scriptures versus Jews today who are just like, yeah, you know, Genesis is like, that's allegory. Like, no, that's mm-hmm. not that's not what the Pharisees believe. They, they believe in a very literal interpretation of the Bible in general. So, you know, that's why they believe in a physical resurrection of the dead versus the Sadducees didn't. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah, that's, you know, and I think your, your interview with Chuck Baldwin kind of really hits the nail on the head now there's there's this sort of contrast of is it israel centered or is it christ centered um can i just be honest with that i I believe it's ultimately a false dichotomy because i believe that ultimately whatever the scripture teaches is quote-unquote christ centered because christ is the scripture and christ is the author of the scripture so whatever the scripture teaches is christ centered and i just happen to believe that the scripture very clearly reveals uh, well, for one, there's great emphasis on Jesus and God in the Bible. And I believe also there's great emphasis on the nation of Israel and uh, the physical descendants and what's going to happen in their future. Um, I, I believe it's all there. And that if we're if we're correctly interpreting Romans 11, that we're glorifying Christ through that because he's being glorified through his people, for example. Mm. You know, whenever somebody gets saved, you know, that's a glory to God. I'm sure you right. agree with that, but yeah, well, and, and here's, here's the biggest, most massive mistake that dispensationalists made that has, I mean, obviously I can't overstate just how flawed dispensationalism is, but, uh, uh, at the same time, one of the biggest things that they've done to just completely expose the foolishness of, um, of dispensationalism is one, their beliefs in this future restoration of Israel is extremely flawed, but then where they really shot themselves in the foot is after that, you know, dispensationalism was invented in the 1800s made really big in the early 1900s with Schofield's notes and, and Clarence Larkin is when that started getting popularized in the early 1900s. Everybody was so anxious to see Israel uh, become a nation that they were, they took 1940, they made a way, way bigger deal about 1948 than they should have. 1948 came so far short of Israel coming back as a nation that it's not even funny. It does not resemble anything in the Bible. And so, you know, what were the key moments in Israel? Obviously the key moments in Israel was when they came out of Egypt, but then, um, you know, after they came out of the wilderness and they, with the miracle of crossing the Jordan river, uh, God did one thing after another, we have the temple. And then you have the, it was a major thing about 500 years. I think after the temple was built or 400 some, it was destroyed. They have 70 years where they're basically not in the land, but there God preserved them as a people. And then the clock literally starts ticking on the 70 weeks of Daniel at the proclamation of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Israel is nothing under the old covenant without their temple. They're nothing. 
And, and so when it was destroyed uh, in 70 AD, that was the end of them. With, without a doubt, that was the end. They were killed. All right. They were, or you could say maybe they were greatly wounded. And here's, here's what we're actually looking for prophetically. Because the dispensations are right. There is going to be a comeback. There is going to be another temple built. But it wasn't in 1948. Here's when, here's when Israel comes back. And I believe it is in Revelation 13. So I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet was the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and a seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And a lot of people want to apply that just to the Antichrist, the man of sin, all that. I think it's a reference to, uh, personally, I think that's probably a reference to the nation of Israel. I think that, uh, I think uh, when Israel, if you want to call it that, this city of bondage, okay, the, that Paul referred to it as in Galatians 4, the city that's in bondage, that promotes the bondage of the law, that rejects the Messiah that was destroyed, their temple was destroyed, I personally believe that they will make a comeback. Their deadly wound will be healed, but it will be when they start to rebuild their temple again and they're given power for 42 months. I, I think they're the beast, personally. But the problem is nobody wants to connect it to that because everybody knows we shouldn't support the beast. Everybody knows we shouldn't bless the beast, but that's what they are. And so... Everybody got way too anxious for that to happen, and then they and then they turned it into a good thing. No, Revelation 13 is a bad thing, and Revelation 13 hasn't happened yet. 1948 wasn't Revelation 13, and it for sure wasn't Ezekiel 37. Uh, and but I believe Revelation 13 is still yet to come, and I believe that will probably happen when Israel actually does come to power when they actually become a legitimate nation, when they actually do get a hold of the Temple Mount and they're able to rebuild their temple, none of that has happened yet. It's literally, uh, it, it's, it's a two-state fighting with each other. You know, they're just, they're claiming to be a nation while a good chunk of the world rejects it. But the world is going to wander after the beast. The world will be behind the beast. One of these days... Those people over there, they will get their agenda and they will have the world backing them. And but when they do, it's not it's not a good thing. It's going to be the world recognizing, acknowledging the beast. And they are going the world, I believe, is going to unite in the single greatest rebellion that there has ever been against Jesus Christ. And that is when they spit in the face of Jesus Christ and they literally go back to the things of the temple, denying the fact that Jesus Christ already came and finished those things, offered up himself as a sacrifice, and they're going to say, no, we don't want you. And they're going to unite the world in standing against Christ and going back to the things of the temple. And so a supporting of Israel is a supporting of the beast. And it's going to end badly for the beast. It's not going to get saved.
Um, all I can say is like, I mean, with all due respect, I mean, I, I would say that that view of the beast that you just expressed in, in Revelation 13, I mean, that that just needs to be rejected. Um, Why? Because it's a literal it's beast. Just, absolutely it is a a it is a seven-headed ten-horned beast um it's described in you daniel think there's literally going to be a seven-headed ten-horned beast yes like literally a beast like absolutely. A, a dragon the world's going to see a dragon with seven heads and ten horns yes I i've mean, never heard anybody teach that ever it it's not to say okay because people hear that and i know it is like a shocking uh, statement that being said i i definitely recognize symbolism i think there are symbolic things of that you know i think revelation 17 talks about explanations of that but nevertheless it doesn't take away from the fact that this is what john saw now most people will be like yes this is what john saw but what i would say is that it, in revelation 13 the beast is clearly this literal seven-headed ten-horned thing and the, be- the world says who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him um it's in context it is that beast that literal beast they're not talking about a man although i believe it's a man too i believe that is the man of sand but well i believe they'll have a man representing him for sure you know i i believe there will be i believe there will be a single figure but remember a man okay like like a president you know is nothing you know, they, you know, like people will say, even Joe Biden with, the, with his dimension, everything is the most powerful man in the world. Why? Well, because of his kingdom, you could say, or his his nation that he is over. And so obviously the beast is it is, you know, he there will be a, a man who is in charge, a son of perdition, but he has a kingdom. And I believe that kingdom will be Israel. OK. Yeah, but I don't believe there's going to be a literal dragon. Okay. I mean, because the previous chapter is Revelation 12, where you have Satan, who is literally there, a seven-headed, ten-horned dragon. And it's no coincidence that you read about a beast. I don't even think Satan is literally a seven-headed, ten-horned dragon. You're saying you don't even believe that? No. I don't like, just like I don't think Jesus is literally a lamb. Well, I would also disagree with you on that because of Revelation 4. Um, now that's to say, obviously when he was on earth, when he was called behold the lamb of God, which take away son of the world, obviously that he didn't have a lamb body appearance. So, so you think he, has he was books? a man? Yes. In revelation four, absolutely. In five. Yes. He's multiple appearances in the Bible for sure. I, I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, it, it's the, this, this is sort of. This is why I have tremendous problems with prophecy students in general, and I love them, but I'm very frustrated by them because the statements are very clear. It's very clear English what's being said, but we just have this cognitive dissonance that we read it and we just, well, when it's the lamb, it's Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus, but it's the lamb Jesus, not the man Jesus even though it's the man Jesus too. So it's just taking the, the text objectively. What does it say? And that's what we need to get back to. That's what we've been missing. Uh, Cause the, that's why 
when I hear the beast is Israel, I'm just like, that doesn't, that doesn't fit with what the beast does. It, it's just, it's, and you have, there's a zillion different interpretations of what the beast is, but it's like, um, why are we missing the obvious of what the text says? Why are we doing that? Is it because we're, we're, we're scared that we're going to look foolish to somebody? That's not a good reason. Right. But you understand these are visions. And, and I believe in literal visions. Right. But yeah. And some, so somebody, but when they would have a vision, yeah, they're literally seeing something, but what they're uh -huh. literally seeing is symbolic of something that represents the reality okay. of earth. So I understand where you're going with this. Um, and there are examples you could bring up of like Joseph's dream with, right. you know, the seven cattle, for example. Well, obviously I'm going to point out, he literally saw seven cattle. Yeah, I agree. But as far as how he was to, but it was just a vision. Apply that vision, which was still a literal vision. I would, I would probably argue that what happened happened literally in the spiritual realm. But even if that wasn't the case, um, obviously he was given the correct interpretation as to how to apply that. Right. Um, but that's what we're Revelation, seeing in John. In, in, or in Revelation, we're seeing John's writing his vision. Mm -hmm. but, the, but visions are not literal. They, they're they literal visions. They literally, they mean something literally. But I do not believe we will ever see a seven-headed, ten-horned dragon. Okay. I mean, because I, I, I think that will happen. Um I hope so. so. Here, That'd be cool, I, but I, let me just say this: just because, for example, like Joseph's dream, you, know, you have basically the was it seven cattle become seven mm -hmm. years? Like just because you have that that correlation where we know cattle aren't years, years aren't cattle. Um, but it, yet, nevertheless, that is kind of what's going on because that's how it's correlated. Um, I don't see just because there's a literal that doesn't mean the literal isn't really there. It's just like this, I don't know, spooky mist or something. Like I don't see. See, the other issue is, I think particularly for a futurist is, and there's the whole issue of millennialism, whether you believe in a, a future millennium, you know, if you're a millennial, post millennial, pre millennial, that whole debate. Well, if you take the a mill or post mill position, you're basically going to say that well the thousand years that's symbolic um and i'm just like well it's a thousand years literally and and if you're like well but the beast is symbolic there's no ground to stand on anymore like that's why people are getting convinced of amillennialism or postmillennialism or something that isn't premillennialism because they're not taking you know they're just not being consistent versus what I'm saying is, no, there actually is a consistent view on this. It's just, it's taken it at face value. It's not to say that there's no symbolism at all, but the text will uh, tell you some things, you know, that like Revelation 17 will give you some insight into this beast, but I don't think it takes away from the fact that there literally is a beast. And, you know, they're basically, if the, if the vision is going to translate to something else we end up being in the dark completely because it's all we don't know any of this and that's where i'm like no we, we just need to get back to the text and let it uh speak very freely and objectively well the, here's the thing when you are in error 
you know, and this is my opinion, you're an error, but when it, anytime you're an error, you can do one of two things. When you get challenged in your error, you can either correct it or you can continue following that error to its logical conclusion, which is going to become greatly absurd. And just like that's what the uh, Ruckmanites do, they have some completely absurd interpretations of the Bible, but that is where you take certain things that they believe to its logical conclusion. I, I think you're doing the same thing. And so when you see Jesus is literally a lamb with hooves and everything, uh, you know, that's that's you going to the logical conclusion, you know, in your error. And man, dude, it's like you're you're taking a little bit of all the groups out there, the most repulsive ones. And merging it into your own thing, you know, you've got a little bit of Calvinism and a little bit of dispensationalism. I mean, those are the Calvinism and dispensationalism are the two massive hairy warts on the face of the IFB, and you're you've got both of them, man. You know, you why, yeah. why don't you just it, get those moles uh, removed, man? Because uh, I would say those quote moles are the scripture what it's teaching. I mean, that's why. So. The well, irony is and, that and, and the logical conclusion the logical conclusion yeah. is gonna be Jesus has hooves and uh the beast literally has seven heads and ten horns and is a dragon. So cool religion. And yet it's what the text I mean just says. I mean that's that's the disturbing thing to me is that we can read that and just think not a chance. Because it's a vision. And and again, like then it's going to become well the weird things those are symbolic but the the numbers those are literal like what and even then like the seven heads like john seeing it, heavenly it things you know, hev heavenly things they they can't be accurately described in earthly terms uh i i think they have been accurately described uh, then they have to have been accurately described not in not in a literal sense. I mean, they're described in uh in the way God wanted them described, but they're not to be taken uh, in a literal sense. You know, that's what that's that's the whole thing. You know, you're you're going full Nicodemus right now. Like when Jesus said, "You must be born again." He's like, "Well, can you enter a second time into a mother's womb?" I mean, that isn't. I mean, that's that's what you're saying, right? But you know, what did Jesus say? He said, "If I've told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things?" So he was he was making a comparison there of something spiritual, obviously a spiritual birth, but, and, and he used an earthly thing to explain that to him. And he still didn't get it. And he's like, well, if I tell you heavenly, he's like, if you can't even get the earthly, you're definitely not going to get the heavenly things. John gets caught up in the spirit into heaven. And he's, you know, he's, he's writing about things that, you know, our words can't do justice to. So he, and it's the same thing. The apostle Paul, when he got caught up in the third head heaven, he saw things that are unlawful to be uttered. You know, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, you know, it's it's hard to say. But um, you know, you know, either, either way you look at it, you know, a vision's a vision, and it's uh, it's something that yeah, somebody literally saw. But there's a message. You know, when Peter saw that unclean beast, you know, on the sheet and all that. Mm -hmm. That he had to kill. That he had to kill and eat. You know, what what was the purpose of that vision? 
uh, the purpose of that vision right. was for him to not call what God has cleansed common or unclean because right. God was about to save a Gentile, which was right. something Peter couldn't grasp at the time. But God taught him that truth about Gentiles being cleansed through that vision. And so in, okay. in, in reality, the beast was nothing more than just a vision. I don't think we're going to see that beast someday in heaven. Like that's one Peter saw. Oh, I think it was just a vision Peter had. It was something he saw in his head, in his mind while he was in a trance. And God used that vision to teach Peter something. And, and, and so, you know, we literally see it fulfilled at the salvation of Cornelius. Okay. That's a little so, fulfillment. Well, Peter's vision obviously has some weird content in it. And I would just say, like, yeah, he's actually seeing that. And obviously you would you would agree with that too. Well, yeah, and I agree, I agree that awesome. there is there's that there's application to, you know, like acceptance of the Gentiles, and then there's also kind of even um well now it's okay to eat pork, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, along with that too. Mm-hmm. So you have if application, you know, you're, you're, we're told the application, but it still doesn't take away from the literalness of what happened. And, and to me, it's just, it's really, really clear that, that John is describing a vision of the future. And, and when I say that, I mean, he's seeing the future, not as in, well, this is kind of, this is what's going to happen. But what you're seeing here is all going to end up translating into these other things, many of which would be left untold to us which already put, would take the book of Revelation, which is the book of revealing, not concealing, versus Daniel is uh, has some concealing in it. And I mean, that would just be just flipping it on its head. So, I mean, what John is seeing, it's revealing. It's, it's, a, it's a vision of revealing as opposed to a, a vision of concealing. Mm. Yeah. Well, hey, like, it's... Like, I'll just say, if you believe, like, you know, I, I think a lot in the new IFB or... Um, or people that have come from that, you know, which I, I would consider you part of that, even though you're, I, I know you maybe wouldn't call yourself that, but no. just because of past association. But um, Revelation 9, like, it's kind of a given in that movement that, yeah, you have literal locusts and all that. And what I'm saying is, if you believe that the locust description there is literal, but then the beast isn't, that's very inconsistent. Very inconsistent. And so that's kind of why, this is also why, because I reject full preterism, um, I also reject partial preterism and variations on that. Um, and, and I'm just like, let's just get back to the text and just take it really for what it says. And just because it's a weird, um, thing that's being described. Well, um, I think that's the kind of the whole point is just describe it. It's going really out of its way to describe this stuff because it's actually going to happen. We can know these things and that they're not hidden from us. Right. Well, yeah, no, I mean, honestly, yeah, Revelation 9, I'm I'm open to the possibility of that being symbolic too, but uh, but yeah, but hey, I do need to get going. I've got to go meet with somebody, but I probably, we probably better shut this down, but it's definitely been an interesting conversation. That's good. Well, I appreciate so. the time. I mean, you know, I know what I'm saying is, is kind of unique, but, you know, I'm willing to discuss further if you like, and... You know, just show people what I, what I think really is is the truth of the scripture here, and you know, it, it. I appreciate the platform for being able to speak on this, so thank you. Yeah, 
Yep. Well, all right. I don't. Yep. It's, it's uh, always good talking. So you take care and we'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Right, bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, got a little weird, but you know what? Uh, I am not above being challenged on what I teach. Um, he had reached out to me and so it's like, yeah, let's do this. So hopefully you didn't get weirded out too much, but, uh, I will not pretend that he represents all those who oppose my teaching on the Olivet discourse, but I will say this. If you are going to, if you people who make it all about the future, just remember if you're going to make it all about the future and none of it was about the past. You take some of those things to its logical conclusion, you're going to end up places uh, similar. So keep those things in mind. But I appreciate you watching this. I hope you enjoyed it. God bless you. We'll see you all next time.